Like a Word. Welcome back to part three of We'd Like a Word with me, Paul Waters. And me, Stephen Colgan. And our guest on this unusual episode that's been recorded sort of three-way across the internet, uh, which is why the sound quality might not be as good as usual, is Tony Kent. Author of Power Play. And we want to actually hear from somebody else, apart from you, Tony. Uh, so Judith O'Reilly has got in touch. We put out a, a call on Twitter and social media for other people whose book launches have been disrupted. And she's got in touch to tell us a bit about her book, Curse the Day. Hello, I'm Judith O'Reilly. I've written four books, uh, one of them a bestseller and a Radio 4 book of the week. My latest book is called Curse the Day. It's a thriller featuring a new action-adventure hero called Michael North. It offers all the escapism of a Bond movie with lots of twists and turns about a breakthrough in artificial intelligence and the murder and mayhem that follows. Tony, you're already familiar with Judith O'Reilly. I am, yes. Judith is is a brilliant writer, great thriller writer writes uh, very, very close to what I write, genre-wise. Because, um, as you know, crime is such a wide genre, it covers so much. Judith's action thrillers are, are very, very close to what I write. And I've actually read uh, her first book, Killing State, and I've read two-thirds of um, her new book, her new book, Curse Today. And unfortunately, I then got ill, so I couldn't finish it. And I can't stand going back and finishing a book, so I need to now give it a week and then start the whole thing again. However, I can say the first two thirds that I read and the entirety of her first book were absolutely fantastic. And anybody who is looking for an exciting read should go and snap those up straight away. So there you go, Judith. And anyone listening, Judith O'Reilly, she's someone else to check out. And you heard it from Tony Kent. Thank you very much, Judith, for getting in touch. And as part of it, we've also been asking people to you know, help us celebrate bookshops. Bookshops, obviously, having a hard time at the minute, closed down. And she wants to talk about the Forum Bookshop in Corbridge in Northumberland. The indie bookshop I'm suggesting you try is Forum Books in Corbridge. 01434-632-931. That's 01434-632-931 for my book or any other book. Tony, what is your favourite bookshop? Am I allowed to be completely cliched and say Goldsboro Books? Good choice. Goldsboro Books is, is for me, is like it's just a little bit of heaven in the middle of London. I can, it's walking distance. It's not a short walk, but it's walking distance from my office. I love the people in there and just the stock they have, the things they have. It, it's, you can find just little treasures whenever you go in. We're actually running a competition uh, with Power Play um, for pre-orders. And anyone who goes on my Twitter can, can follow this or onto Facebook because what we've arranged is that anybody who pre-orders PowerPlay before the 15th of April go into a draw. They have to send to a, a particular email address at my publishers, which is all on the tweets, a proof of purchase, and they go into a draw. And the draw is for £250 to spend in Goldsboro. Now, I'd thought about, you know, should, we just be a, should it be a £200 book voucher? And, but no, it's got to be Goldsboro because if you love books... You will love Goldsboro, and hopefully, someone who wins it won't have been there. Um, and so, it's introducing somebody else there, and they they can go and buy something very special. Goldsboro Books is just off the Charing Cross Road, and it's it's unusual 
it it has a kind of a restrictive stocking policy. Tell us about that. They only stock, I think it's first edition hard signed hardbacks. There is almost nothing you can't get. It's basically become my wife's go-to Christmas present place for everybody. I mean, what, no matter how varied your the thing you want, they will find it for you. They may not stock it, but they'll find it. If you give them enough time, they'll go and get it. And literally from anywhere in the world, if you want something special in terms of a book, a signed first edition hardback, there is nowhere else, I believe, anywhere on the planet, in fact, that you can do better than Goldsmith. Right, so I suppose we ought to have some... Uh, oh, we should say, Tony, we ask all of the guests to pose a question for the audience. There's no prizes or anything. We just, like, give out a little brain teaser. So have a think about that, if you like, while we're doing this bit. <laughs> We've had the most bizarre things. We had A couple of weeks ago, we had someone asking where a, a lobster's... What was it? Where a lobster's teeth are? We had someone else asking... What were the features on the original dinky James Bond DB5 car? You know, we've had all sorts of weird things. So have a think, but we'll just cover these a minute. And we should really have warned you about this earlier, but as usual, I forgot. I know. <laughs> anyway, over to you, Steve. Unusual circumstances as well, really. So, Right, we better have a look at the questions that were posed to us by Daniel and John, who were our guests on the self-help book episode. Now, Daniel asked us, what was REBT called before it was called that? You know the answer, Paul? Is it rational emotive therapy? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. But I only know that because Janice got in touch with the answer. Ah. The other thing is, every time you move your head on this video to read something, you move your head to one side, and just behind your head is a skull oh, yeah, yeah. with sunglasses on and a little hat on top saying, yeah, India! Well, actually, that, that's quite bizarre, and, he, and he's frowning. Well, the skull has got eyes, it's a bit scary. Well, the- it's kind of looking at the back of your head disapproving of what you're doing (laughs) but there was another question yeah the other question was posed by john williams which was a little bit more complex which is what happens in bali on new year's day and it's probably easier if we let john explain for himself so on new year's day it's known as nyepi because the ogo ogo have been used the night before to scare away the bad spirits it's important that on nyepi there is no light no heat and complete silence for the entire day. They close the airport. You can't fly in and out. You shouldn't drive. You shouldn't have any lights on in your house. You're not allowed to cook. So even people in hotels are supposed to respect this, at least to a certain extent. And I was staying in a hotel at the time. And what we did was they put no big lights on. If you want to put a light on in your room, you had to close the curtains. And people would walk around the streets for a little, uh, the local, um, uh, kind of like the local council, I guess, walk around with a torch and they would yell at you if you had a light on. And this is so that we made sure that the spirits are not attracted back into the country. Because if you can do that for one day, then the whole year will be, you know, will auspicious. It's quite, well, a, it's quite a moment to be there. And you look imagine. out, there's no lights anywhere at night. There's complete silence. Fantastic. So the answer is kind of nothing. Yes. As a an add-on to that, Janice got in touch to say that also, as well as that, the youth in the village of Sesetan in South Bali practice the ceremony of Omid Omidan. I probably have the pronunciation all wrong, which is also known as the kissing ritual to celebrate New Year. So there you go. She also says she really enjoyed the episode. Wasn't sure I was going to. So a nice surprise. Thank you for that compliment. Uh, kissing rituals. We won't be seeing any of those for a little while, will we? <laughs> Before we come to Tony's question... 
Let's go to another bookshop. I called into Waterstones in High Wycombe to speak to Ben Churchill, who has responsibility for a number of shops in South Buckinghamshire and, and thereabouts. Obviously, like other bookshops, it's closed. It's not taking anyone in. And there's no mistake in the enthusiasm for books that Ben Churchill has. Ben, tell me what you do. Hi, um, I work for Waterstones. Um, I'm what's known as a commercial support role. Um, So I essentially stock the shops. I buy stock for four, soon to be five stores in in Bucks. So we're here in High Wycombe. What are the other ones? Uh, So I work with Hitchin, which isn't in Bucks. I work with, I'm going to work with Amersham and Chesham and at the moment I work with Banbury and Aylesbury. So this is quite a big shop and you've got all sorts of things. We're standing in fiction. We've got new non-fiction poetry, drama, manga, jigsaws, games, cookbooks, lots of children's books. What's your favourite? The section we're standing in right now. Fiction. Yeah. So what are, you, what are you reading at the minute? I'm actually reading Wolf Hall for the, for the first time. and. Um, because your window's full of Hilary well, Mantel, yeah. so you thought you'd better catch up. It feels fairly topical, yeah. Um, obviously, The Mirror and the Light has just been published, and it's it's going to be the biggest thing that we'll, we'll have for the, for the next ten years. So I thought it's probably about time I, I catch up. And what do you keep in mind when you're choosing books for all these shops? A big thing is, is, is just about, A, it's the quality of the title. And it's also whether it's the, kind of the right title for the kind of market they have. All my shops have different markets, so you know, you'll very rarely find the same displays or tables or, or, or range of titles in, in each of my shops. But the, the main thing is, is the quality. Everything that we stock is, regardless of the, the genre or the, or the kind of target market, it's always of a decent quality. So how would you distinguish between the different types of markets and in, in the different shops that you oversee yourself? I've actually got quite a nice mix. So, I mean, it's, I've got a, quite a literary market in Hitchin. Uh, here we've got quite a nice balance between more sort of mass market and literary. And then I've got the more mass shops in, in, in sort of in Aylesbury and Banbury. But what's so great about Waterstones and the way that we approach buying and stocking is that we, we've got quite a big range. We're quite varied in, in, in what we sell and what we stock. And that is intentional because we never want a certain demographic to feel ostracized or, or, or feel like we aren't able to accommodate for them and even if for example we don't have something that somebody wants we can order it within a day or two and have it ready for them whenever they need it do you feel the weight of responsibility you're a major cultural tastemaker i guess in this big town and this is the main bookshop you're influencing what people read what they think i guess to a certain extent. I mean, when you put it like that, it's, it sounds like I have more responsibility. It works both ways. I mean, it's a, it's a reactionary job. So, I mean, if, if, something, if something starts selling really well, then naturally we'll probably get more of it in or more of that type of, of book. What about setting an agenda? So you have power to set agendas and rather than follow what people want, suggest what they should want. To what extent can you do that or have you done that maybe on the sly? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely... I'd never say that it's a, it's a, we never set out to do that. I think it's, it's more a case of... I suppose I was thinking you personally yeah. could set out to do that. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely titles that, that I've read, especially. It's more a case of if a bookseller or myself has read something and we just love it. So, so what have you loved lately? Well, I've actually, it's staring opposite me because I've always got it in stock. It's Paul Oster's 4321 was the latest thing that, that really struck a chord with me. 
it was a couple of years ago I read it it was on it was on the Booker Prize that year and it just blew me away and we had it on a little table and we just recommended to every single person who walked through the door and it became one of our best-selling titles that year we did 100 or so copies in 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 a few weeks and it 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 would never have been something that we'd have put on a table had you know had I not read it and I was a bookseller at the time so I wasn't actually buying at that point but I literally just dropped an email to the buyer and just said get us 30 we'll sell it in a way that is the power that we've got we can create bestsellers and I mean as a company we've we strive to kind of make authors in a way I mean Jessie Burton who's the author of The Miniaturist she was she was our book of the year with with her first book Sarah Perry the same with with her for her second book just recently we had The Boy, The Mole, The Fox and The Horse Charlie Mackesy's gorgeous book that was our book of the year that's just done better than I think anyone ever expected and that's because at the end of the day we're talking to people about books so that's wonderful though you can you have this platform to share things you love it's the best job in the world if you love books that's what we always say we're in quite a privileged position we get to essentially we get paid to talk about the things that we spend most of our life reading so what are people buying now or asking for now at the minute I mean obviously the biggest thing at the moment is is the new Hilary Mantel I mean that is such a powerhouse of publishing at the moment with the women's prize announced as well recently luckily a lot of those are actually in paperbacks so they're they're proving to be quite popular namely girl woman other by bernardine Evaristo that won it was a joint winner of the booker queenie candy's carty williams's book that was our one of our book of the months um what else is new our books of the month at the moment there's elizabeth mcneil's the dollhouse adrian mckinty's the chain which is really cool it's a really that's very good really scary really premise. really good idea <laughs> Going back to your question, actually, about influencing bestsellers in a way, there's a, there's a book by Anna James, which is a sort of middle-grade title, which is the first in her series called Pages & Co., uh, Tilly and the Book Wanderers. And again, that was, that's been our bestseller for the last three or four months because one of my kids' booksellers loved it and just recommended it beyond anything we could have ever imagined. So that's still doing brilliantly well for us as well, which is nice. So do you have much dealings with authors? So, for instance, if you're recommending The Chain by Adrian McKinty, and really plugging it, will he ever get to hear of that apart from listening to this <laughs> and sort of go, uh, nice one, mate? It completely depends. I mean, it's it's a couple of weeks ago, Elizabeth McNeil was in to sign copies of The Dollhouse because, you know, she was doing the rounds. You see, and you have a lovely little smile as you're saying that. Yeah, you're nice. genuinely thinking, oh, yeah, how yeah. exciting. Yeah, it's, it is great. And I mean, we, I, you know, I've, I've had the privilege of meeting some authors before and we just, I think sometimes as, as booksellers of a, you know, a relatively sized bookshop in in a, in a town we sort of underestimate the impact that we can have on on especially on sales but especially on authors themselves yeah it, it's it's amazing when we get to to meet them how did you get into this i started when i was six uh, 17 i was a saturday bookseller and just i just fell in love with it you just get to talk to people about books so we hear that times are very tough for small bookshops how is it for you the good thing about it is that we, we've definitely got through the, the toughest times in terms of um, our competitors. So when I, when I just started, I mean, the Kindle was a massive thing and we were selling Kindles at one point. The company's financial position was a bit up in the air, but we, you know, we got through that in 2016. We, the company announced that we'd made a profit for the first time in however many years. And I think the, the brilliant thing about where we are now is that we are sticking to the basics. We're creating good good bookshops with the books that the customers will want in the towns that they're in and we have people who are obsessed with books working for us just recommending i should ask you 
if a writer wants to get their book into this shop, how do they go about it? Sadly, it isn't the case of, of just popping in, and, and it's, it's just not that easy anymore, unfortunately. But there, there is a, a process that Waterstones does take. If you scroll down right at the bottom of, of the homepage on waterstones.com, there is, there's the information to find out how. There's no promises. <laughs> well, he did it for Adrian McKinty. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed, Ben. Thanks for having me. Cheers. So, Tony, do you have a question for our audience? Slightly sort of dropped on me at the last minute, so therefore I've had to go back to my, uh, my, my the, the only thing that I know a lot about, which is boxing history. Uh, so my question would be, who was the first Olympic boxing gold medalist to win the World Headweight title? So that's slightly complicated, a little bit more difficult to Google. Good. So give it to us again. Who was the first Olympic boxing gold medalist to go on to win the world heavyweight title? Okay, thank you very much indeed. So tell me, Tony, we're living in strange times, uncertain times at the moment. What do you think are going to be the sort of lasting effects? I know this is, you're not a political commentator, but just as, as, as a member of society, what do you think are going to be the lasting effects of this whole coronavirus epidemic um it's hard to say isn't it i think that the economic effects are going to be very damaging but i think they're going to be damaging around the world and i have a a tiny little hope that that it may sort of straighten things out a bit and and it's a tiny little hope i think it's very unlikely so I've, i've thought for some time that we don't live in a um in a capitalist state anymore. I, I'm, I'm not a socialist by any means. I, I believe very strongly in capitalism. I believe in the meritocracy of it and the fact that you can start in one place and through hard work and merit, you can, you can end up somewhere else. And I don't believe that's where we live anymore. And I think we now live in what I've called a number of times a disguised oligarchy, whereby now you are extremely wealthy or you're not, and that's where it ends. You are, you know, the, the rich are allowed to get richer, the rest of us are allowed to just trot on. And that is not capitalism. And I'm hoping against hope, the reaction of the world to Richard Branson and me saying we need seven billion for the aviation industry. Why? Why why is that industry? It's supply and demand. And if there's no demand, why do we have to bail you out? You don't give us all of your profits. Why should we cover your losses? Uh, and then you've got yeah, Mike Astley. We are now... a, a for a moment until he was completely destroyed by the internet was claiming that Sports Direct was an essential shop for people to keep fit and therefore they're all going to stay open you've got um, the guy from Weatherspoons Tim Martin that's him yeah effectively just sacked everybody over the go and work for Tesco and I just think I'm very hopeful very hopeful but a very small hope that, that potentially this may just open people's eyes but the problem with that, unfortunately, is I think that the, the, the base level of engagement in, in the nation is not where I would like it to be. And I think you've only got to look at how people were congregating together on, on Mother's Day and all of this business and just ignoring the advice that's been given. Now, I, I do believe that Boris Johnson should have not been given advice. I think Boris Johnson should have been giving instructions and orders from the beginning because people are people. And a lot of people will say, well, that's just that's recommendation, that's not an order. And I believe that we are, as a nation, very good at obeying orders. Now, obviously, for my job, I deal with those of us who don't obey orders. But, um, but because of that, I, I do see how many of us do obey orders. And I think that we're going to have a very different scenario in this country now in the next few months. So, so, so my worry is, however, 
that having seen the way people reacted to what was advice rather than instruction, um, I don't know whether we have the engagement that we need to achieve the one thing that I hope we might achieve, which is a bit of a change in, in culture in terms of the haves and have-nots, etc. So I, I think ultimately we have to wait and see. Um, yeah, we can, the things we hope will happen, there are things that I'm sure will happen. I think the one thing we know is we're going to lose a lot of people. And I think we are very far beyond the point where we can prevent that. And that's, that's, you know, that's the worst part of it. And the terrible thing is that's the only certain part of it. Yeah. No, very interesting, because I mean, that, that very much mirrors my own thoughts. I'm kind of hoping that what this is going to show us is the chinks in the armour. It's going to show us that a lot of the things that we take for granted are kind of built on quite shoddy foundations. Yes. And I think there there is an opportunity, as you say, to, to sort of rebuild, make things better. It's certainly going to be good for the environment, I think. There's been a lot of people talking about the good it's doing to the environment already. I, I've actually found that incredible. And you... I don't believe in Gaia theory, <laughs> but no. but you look but you look look at it and think, oh my god! I mean, the, the effect of what's happening is very much in line with the whole Gaia theory you know, business. I'm not suggesting for a moment that's 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 the reality of where this has all come from, but the speed with which the environment has healed itself is 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 staggering. I mean, it really is absolutely staggering. And uh, again, you asked me earlier on about what research I do. If I were writing a book, because I don't do the research, first of all, I would never even dream of including that kind of repair because you'd think, well, that's ridiculous, it's illogical, so therefore it won't happen. But I'm staggered by it. Venice just, is just incredible. I know. Amazing. Tony, you mentioned earlier that you're starting your fourth book from scratch. Is that because you had a fourth book in your mind or you'd begun it, but you've scrapped it? And what's going on there? I had, I'm glad you asked, I should have said it myself, I had a fourth book half written, half written, all about Joe Dempsey, Michael Devlin was in it, it included the wedding of Michael and Sarah, and um, it was was half written and I really liked it, however, uh, it was all about a child with a pathogen in its blood who was going to be used as a weapon by terrorists to spread a pandemic. Ultimately, it wasn't going to be about a pandemic because the whole point was to stop it happening. However, there's no way it would have been portrayed as that. There's no way that wouldn't have been the, the way it was the way it was brought out, uh, the way it was advertised. And I just got to the point, as I said, I was ill myself for two weeks. And while I was ill, I was lying there thinking to myself, I can't write that book. I can't write any more of that book having gone through this. Certainly not now. I can come back to it in a few years. Moreover, I just thought, I can't profit from this. I can't. I don't want to seem to the world as if I am profiting from what they're all going through now. I don't know whether anyone's going to want to read a book about that for a few years. I wouldn't. I don't know whether or not it's going to, whether or not there's going to be a a flood of them. I really think there is. But mainly, I don't want to be seen to be somebody who is profiting from this. And so I made the decision while I was ill or when I just, a week ago, I thought, I need a new book. I need to come up with a new book. And so that's when I thought, well, what would be interesting would be to let people watch that happen because I'm literally starting from a blank page in a way that I would never do before. Ordinarily, I give it a month or so of thinking. I would just think and think it through. Um, And then it doesn't often bear a huge relation to what I've been thinking through by the time it's ended. But I start with a month's worth of thoughts. I'm starting this with nothing. (laughs) And 
as I say, I, I thought that might be an interesting thing for people to follow on YouTube. I suppose the charity auctioning of character names might be difficult if it was the pandemic book. You could be the person who is to blame for killing the world. <laughs> that's right. Name my typhoid Mary. Name patient zero. Yeah, that's not not a good plan. Not a good plan. Well, I suppose we're getting to the point now we should be thinking about wrapping up. Next time, we're going to be doing more on people who've had their book launches disrupted. So anyone listening, or if you know anyone, a writer who's had their book launch disrupted, point them in our direction. And maybe we can feature them like we featured Tony or Judith. Until then, thank you very much, Tony Kent, author of Power Play. You've been listening to Weed Like a Word with me, Paul Waters. And me, Stephen Colgan. Bye-bye. Until the next time, you've been listening to Weed Like a Word. Thank you.